What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Jonathan Friedland, the journalist, columnist and author, joins us to discuss his new book, The Escape Artist. During the Second World War, Rudolf Verba was one of the very few people to escape the horrors of the Auschwitz concentration camp in April 1944. His first-hand knowledge of the camp was essential in spreading the message of what was happening to Jews and other marginalised groups under the hands of the Nazis. The story of his escape appearing in international media shortly after. Jonathan Friedland is a columnist for The Guardian, presenter of BBC Radio 4's The Long View, and author of numerous fiction and non-fiction books, the latest of which is The Escape Artist, which tells the story of Rudolf Verba. He recently spoke with the journalist and broadcaster Manveen Rana about it. Here's Manveen with more. Jonathan, welcome. This is uh, an amazing book. I mean, I picked it up just sort of meaning to to browse it before in you know before a proper read later and found I couldn't put it down. Um, congratulations. It's it's a it's a gripping book. I really wanted to start by asking you how you first heard about this story. Well thank you Manveen. That's a very kind introduction. Um, and the what I first heard about this story more than 35 years ago. Um, I've carried this around for a long time. It stayed somewhere in the back of my mind ever since I was 19 years old when I went to see in the Curzon Mayfair in London one part of a two-part documentary film. I saw the whole film, don't worry, but I the, the, the big moment came in that first part where um, the documentary film was Shoah by Claude Landsman. Um, which is this epic documentary of the Holocaust, uh, as I say, nine and a half hours long, consists, there's no archive, it consists only of interviews with people who witnessed the eradication, the attempted eradication of the Jews of Europe. And Landsman was fascinated in the mechanics of that, how exactly it happened. And he spoke only to witnesses, people who'd seen that process close up. And as a 19-year-old, you know, it seemed to me to be a succession of these old, often broken men (coughs) and women who were testifying to what they'd gone through. 
And then suddenly on the screen comes this figure who explodes off the screen, just full of charisma and vitality. He seems a generation younger than everyone else. Um, in some ways, he was. Uh, his name was Rudolf Verber, and he was describing the experiences he'd had as a 19-year-old, as a teenager in Auschwitz. The reason he leaps off the screen, by the way, is partly how he looks. He's very handsome. He's very striking. He's tanned. He's wearing a tan leather coat. He's got a full head of hair. It's dark. It's not gray like all the others. He looks like kind of Al Pacino in Scarface or something, you know, with Manhattan as the backdrop. He's speaking in English. A lot of the others were speaking in Polish or Czech and so on. And I just thought, who's that guy? You know, he seems out of place among all these people who were bearing witness from what seemed to be a vanished historical era. Uh, and it turned out that his name was Rudolf Verber, as I say. And it's mentioned almost as an aside by Claude Landsman that this man Verber had escaped from Auschwitz. And I knew, just sitting there as a 19-year-old, the same age as the character that, who was being described, as, if you like, that even then as a 19-year-old, I knew that Jews did not escape from Auschwitz. I mean, it hardly ever happened. And what's odd is that Landsman almost doesn't really talk about that with Verber. He just puts it to one side and really wants to press Verber on everything he saw when he was inside the camp. But I was sitting there thinking, how on earth did he escape? And it stayed with me. It stayed somewhere lodged in the back of my mind for decades, thinking that is an amazing story. And it, I found that it did, in a strange way, sort of come back to me in the last five or six years, specifically since about 2016, the era of fake news and post-truth and so on. I find myself thinking again of Rudolf Verber, partly because, and we, I haven't yet mentioned this, but Verber his motive for escape was in order to warn the world what was happening there and mm. to really to get out, to get the truth out from underneath this mountain of lies in Auschwitz. And so in this era of 2016 and Trump and Brexit and so on, when the word of the year from the Oxford English Dictionary was post-truth and we were in this era of fake news, I found myself almost instinctively going back to this young teenage boy who had done the most outlandish thing possible in order to get the truth out. And that was percolating in my mind and it eventually led me to sit down and write this story. And it does feel extraordinarily timely and there are huge parallels with, with the world now. And we'll, we'll get on to those later. I mean, in a way, I also wanted to know you know, why now in terms of, of um, you know, the characters too? Because I, I imagine you've just managed to catch a few voices and and speak to people and, and take sort of primary um, sources almost in the nick of time. Yes, that is almost exactly how it worked out. And it is quite true that there is an urgency now about telling stories of the Holocaust because so few of the people around uh, then are around now. And Verber himself died in 2006. Uh, I knew that was, um, there was no possibility there. But I had read that he uh, had, had been married twice. His second wife is alive and well and living in the United States. And she and I spoke at great length for this book many, many times. But I'd also read that he had had a first wife who uh, had had moved to England. They had both been married in post-war Czechoslovakia and that she and he both had lived in England in the 1960s. Um, and I, you know, did the maths and worked out this would be a woman in her early 90s if she was still alive. 
I asked around a few people. The closest I could get was that I did, you know, found out that she had taught at University College London um, at some point in her career. I worked out again that she would have retired probably 30 years ago. But I did that thing that journalists do, which is you sort of, uh, you fire off an email speculatively with no hope really that anybody will answer it. And I did it by, you know, working out the email address, you know, first name, dot, last name, at UCL, etc. And I sent it off and th- thought, it will ping back saying undeliverable, or there'll be an administrator saying, you know, Professor Verbova, she had become a scientist, you know, left the department 25 years ago, you know. So I fired that off and then did a few things. And then I, really a matter of a very, very short while later, you know, ping on the inbox, uh, a message from Goethe Verbova saying, I live, dear Jonathan, I live in Muswell Hill. Um, I am uh, available uh, this Thursday. Why don't you come and see me and we can talk? And That you know, must have been an extraordinary moment. Well, an extraordinary moment where your sort of heart is racing. And this was in that COVID summer of 2020. And I drove over there about, you know, 15 minutes from where I live. And we sat in her garden, socially distanced. It was on warm days. And we I had a tape recorder. You know, I used to move it over with my foot. I didn't dare go anywhere near to her because she was 93 years old. And the extraordinary thing about her was that not only had she been married to him after the war, she knew Rudy, as she called him, from before the war. They had been teenage, I I say teenage sweethearts in a way, he he was a teenage crush of hers, I think. Um, But she had known Rudolf Verber, the man who before he went to Auschwitz. She knew him as a teenage boy. By then, his name then was Walter Rosenberg, Walter Rosenberg. That was the person she knew when he was 14 and she was 12. And so when we sat in that garden, she was telling me memories of the man before this, wow. you know, shaping experience. And just to say, because you, you know, said you, that that moment of uh, of extraordinary good fortune, on the second last, I think, of our visits, she said, you know, my grandson is here. Um, because there's something I want to give you and it's upstairs and I can't reach it myself. And Jack, her grandson, went upstairs and came back down with a red suitcase, um, which she and he together handed to me. And she said, those are Rudy's letters. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you thought, okay, I'm sort of meant to write this story somehow. This was meant to be. And we had, I think, one more conversation. And then I did get a phone call from Jack saying that his grandmother, Goethe, had had a fall and had died. But it came after she and I had had those, I think, six very, five or six very long recorded conversations where she was able to tell me the full story and to give me those letters. And and that really set me on my way. Yeah, it's sort of like the passing on of a torch. You sort of, you've become the, the person who holds the, the, the memorial ridge to this man. Well, that's a big responsibility to put it that way. And I, I, um, and in a way, by writing a story, I, I do see that. I mean, he left behind an amazing amount of uh, of information. I mean, he for one thing, he wrote uh, his own memoir in 1963. Uh, it's very good. He co-wrote it with a Fleet Street journalist. It's, it's you know, very well done. He But he was also interviewed. I mentioned Claude Landsman, but he was interviewed mm. by quite a few of, in, to my mind, the people who are really in the first rank of chroniclers of the Holocaust. They sort of got how important he was. You know, we might come on to this, but he's not, he wasn't yeah. a well-known man. But Martin Gilbert, who wrote a kind of definitive history of the Holocaust, 
he tr- made a big deal of Rudolf Verber. Uh, Jeremy Isaacs, who would go on to run Channel 4, uh, made the, that series, The World at War, an episode on the Holocaust. He interviewed Rudolf Verber. Though Claude Landsman, obviously. I think so. There were hundreds of pages of transcripts of interviews with Rudy that I could go through. He, you know, his papers are now in the Roosevelt Archive in New York. There was a lot of material to work on. It, it was, it seemed to me that he himself knew that some, his story was worth telling and he wanted to make sure the information was there to be picked up. That somebody needs to come along and put it all together, which you've done brilliantly. I mean, I think what's so so great about the book is that it works like a thriller. You know, it's utterly gripping. Um, and just talk us through the process of how he becomes one of the very few people to escape Auschwitz, because you know this is a nineteen-year-old. How how yes. old you were when you when you were watching that film? That's I know. It seems when you when you sort of yeah, the feats that he's managed to pull off. I mean, it is, it is remarkable. Just explain how that comes about. Yes. I mean, it is extraordinary. And it comes about partly through a series of other extraordinary things. One of them is the sheer length of time he was in Auschwitz. He arrives on the last day of June 1942. He's just 17 mm. then. After, by the way, he's made several attempts to evade Nazi capture. And one reason I called the book The Escape Artist is he was a serial escapologist. There are escapes both before he gets to Auschwitz and afterwards, later in his life. But he's there and he's there for a long time. And through a series of acts of kind of random good fortune and luck, where there's a, where there, people are being picked out, uh, some of whom will meet a, 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 a horrific end, he somehow evades that time and time again. And so the life expectancy of a prisoner in Auschwitz, those are the people who are there as slave laborers in the concentration camp bit of Auschwitz, was really in weeks and maximum months. And he was there for nearly two years. So that itself is is an extraordinary thing and it is very relevant to the escape point. But also what he did and what he saw is so relevant. So for 10 months, in a way, the, the single job, in quotes, that he did longest of any other job was he worked on what was known as the Alta Judenrampe, the old Jew ramp, uh, the railway platform where the transports, the trains, those cattle trucks packed with Jewish deportees from all points across the continent, you know, Holland, Belgium, Greece, Italy, France, they came on those transports. And he was in that small group of prisoners whose job it was to unload each new transport, meaning get the people off those cattle trucks and get their possessions off as well, because uh, we can talk about that. But a big part of the operation was taking anything material these people had. And two big realizations came to him, which in a way prepared for, may, may, you know, paved the way to his escape. And the first one was he came to this penetrating insight, working day in, day out, and often, you, you know, at night on the ramp, was that he realized that the central to the Nazi method of slaughter, of murdering the Jews of Europe, was deception. Mm. He watched it, he saw it, and realized that this was a vital ingredient, that the reason why the Jews were getting off those trains in a relatively orderly fashion, or, you know, organized into columns and not sort of chaotic, 
was because they had been lied to and lied to at every step of the way. And in the book, I chart all the different deceptions. They genuinely did believe they were being resettled for new lives in the East. And so they'd brought, you know, pots and pans and blankets and children's exercise books with them because they had no clue that they were there for the sole purpose of their own murder. And so he had this mo moment of clarity where he thought, Given that deception is central to the method, the only way of stopping, of halting the Nazi killing machine is to somehow tear away that veil of ignorance, to make ensure that the Jews on future transports know what is awaiting them. And he didn't have any delusions. He wasn't naive. He didn't think, oh, then these Jewish people will form some kind of armed revolt because, you know, these were a lot of them were children, they were elderly, they were sick, they were frail. He didn't think that. But what he did think was that perhaps they would uh, be, there would be chaos, they would panic, they, would, they might stampede. Mm. And in this quite chilling line, Rudy would say years later, you know, it is much harder uh, to hunt deer than it is to kill sheep. And the Nazi method meant that the Jews were processed almost like sheep going to an abattoir in orderly lines. Whereas deer are scattering around the countryside. You have to shoot one at a time. It's very difficult and you can't do it anywhere near as efficiently. And he thought if they had the information, then uh, the, the Jews would potentially panic and make themselves deer. And so the second big thing was he decided somebody has to get out of here and warn the Jews of Europe what is coming because it's clear to him, he can see they have no idea. So he has this double ambition, both to escape, to get out because everyone wants to get out of Auschwitz, but also to get out in order to warn. And that those twin things came together and made him absolutely determined that he wanted to escape. How we would do it, obviously, is a different story. And what's really interesting in the book is that you already start to see evidence of people who are arriving as you say, completely in the dark about what might happen when they get to Auschwitz, who don't seem to want to believe it when they are told. Yes. I mean, this would become a really sharp uh, issue once he, you know, later on, but it was true. It was visible even there that people, and this would become a, a big theme in his life about, you know, that sometimes having information is not enough. You have to also believe it and you have to be you know, be prepared to believe it. No, he witnessed a moment which confirmed him how deep the deception was, which was a transport arrived that included Jews uh, from Prague, from what we would now call the Czech Republic or then Czechoslovakia. And um, it was, you know, well-ordered. And he saw that often the prisoners were almost grateful incredible though that sounds to us because we know what Auschwitz means, they were almost grateful to be there because their journey there had been so terrible mm. that they were in these cattle trucks often for days on end, um, crammed in, no food, no water, no sanitation, where people are, you know, defecating there in front of others. They have nothing to drink. They're parched. They're cramped. The moment the doors open, the Nazis, the Germans would make a big point of saying, oh my word, look how these Czechs have treated you. Look how these Belgians have treated you. Look how these Slovaks have treated you. Well, now, you know, now it's us. And people would be relieved that the, the nation of Goethe and Kant is going to take over now and that this will be some kind of order and, uh, uh, and um, 
uh, and sort of there will be something rational to the system. So he sees this and there's a woman there who um, looks to him like the sort of a, a matron shopping in a Prague supermarket, you know, well-dressed and she has two young children. And she is complaining to one of the Nazis about the terrible way she's been treated on this journey. And and expresses this kind of relief to now be in German hands. Well, one of Rudy's fellow prisoners, you know, in the striped pajama style uniform, hears this. And even though they are under the strictest orders to say nothing, he just can't help himself when he hears this. And he says to this one, whispers under her, his breath, uh, they're going to kill you. You're going to die. Um, because it's a frustration, I think, with the, with the horror of this situation. And the woman goes up to the Nazi officer and says, that prisoner over there, that convict, that gangster, just says, we're all going to die. You know, and the German man says, oh, my word, who would point out this, um, you know, rogue to me, this scoundrel? And he, and she points out the man. He says, well, you know, of course, nothing of the sort. And she's led off. And afterwards, uh, the, the Nazi SS officer approaches the prisoner who she had pointed out. And the prisoner is taken behind the wagon and shot. Uh, murdered on on the spot, and Rudy witnesses it, and is indeed the person who has to carry the body afterwards um, on the platform. That Czech woman and her children were gassed within two or three hours of arriving. In other words, the prisoner who gave the warning was right, but the woman could not bear to hear it. It seemed so outlandish. And one of the points I think is very important in the you know throughout the book is we have hindsight now. We know what. Auschwitz means and what the word meant. To people then, it was quite literally unimaginable. Nothing like it had ever existed in the world before. And therefore, who would imagine a place where people are brought at some expense from all over Europe for the sole purpose of killing them? That an industrial center exists whose product is corpses and human ash. I mean, it's unimaginable that they would any human beings would do this, go to these lengths. And so, therefore, they literally could not imagine it and could not believe it. And there are many, many more cases of that, even afterwards, um, in the, the you know come later in the story. But Rudy thought they need to know before they get here. It's not imaginable once they're here. They need to have the warning before they even set foot on those trains. Not that he thinks they have a choice in the matter. They don't. They're at gunpoint. But maybe they'll panic. Maybe yeah. there'll be chaos, and that will make the Nazis' job that much harder. And for him, I suppose that's an early warning. There is a price to be paid for telling the truth in those circumstances. Tell us how he manages to to pull off the impossible. You know, not many people manage to get out of Auschwitz. How does he do it? Well, you are completely right to say it's the impossible because absolutely not many people got out of Auschwitz. Remember, there's two Auschwitzes, really. There's the death camp where there are gas chambers and people arrive and are dead within hours. And then there is this Auschwitz, the concentration camp, the slave labor camp where prisoners are kept for two, three months until they have essentially worked themselves to death. So that's the setup. Um, hardly anybody ever does it, but of the few that do, the few dozens, the, it, mainly they're Polish prisoners of, uh, Polish political prisoners. There are some Soviet prisoners of war. The one group that he could point to no successful case was Jews. Jews are held under such tight, um, uh, control. They are guarded so closely. You know, when they're in those barracks at night, there are, there is a, 
15-foot electrified barbed wire fence, and then there's another 15-foot electrified barbed wire fence. There are searchlights. There are watchtowers all around with an SS man with a you know machine gun, automatic weapon at each point. Any deviation from routine, people would um, indiscriminately be uh, shot, you know, shot or clubbed to death. It happened all the time. So, as I say, when when Rudy and uh, his fellow Slovak Jew, the slightly older than him, twenty five year old Fred Wetzler, when they begin in whispers talking about this plan together, there is no case they can point to of so and so managed to do it. No Jew has got out um, successfully at that point. Um, uh, you know, no Jew has ever got out and made it to freedom. It's mm. impossible. Uh, and yet the two of them managed to spot a gap in the Nazi defenses. It's not a physical gap. It is instead a loophole through which they realize with a combination of physical extraordinary resilience, but also this rather brilliant ingenuity there is a way through. I'm going to slightly hold back exactly what that gap is because I want people to read the book. <laughs> yes, but there, um, but there, but there is a they they spot somehow that there is a youthful, uh, you know, perspective, the arrogance of youth. I don't know, but somehow they see what others had not seen, and there is a way, and it involves them hiding uh, inside the camp for three days and three nights. But somehow, they do manage to pull it off. And the rather ingenious use of Russian tobacco. I mean, this it's a it's a fascinating book. So it's so well, that, many... that, yes, well, that that we we'll, perhaps we'll just mention that one. There, it's quite true that there was. They were told that a very cheap form of Russian Soviet tobacco, if soaked in gasoline, had an effect to of of repelling the SS sniffer dogs, and so that became crucial part of. The escape. There's a whole lot of sort of know-how. I mean, I, as a kid, grew up on those stories, you know, those old war films, The Great Escape, Escape from Colditz. You know, obviously I'm biased, but to my mind, just purely as an adventure story, it yeah. is the most extraordinary escape that I've read of the Second World War, and I've read quite a few. I think just in sheer sort of physical heroism terms and ingenuity, I don't think you're going to find a more thrilling escape story. I, I, I quite agree. And for, for anybody in that position, it's not just getting out of Auschwitz. Once you have, it's getting out of Nazi Germany. It's, it's, it's getting to somewhere where you might be safe. That's right. They would. They, they, Auschwitz, obviously, Nazi-occupied Poland. They once they get out of uh, of the camp, they are in Nazi-run territory. There are, you know, SS men, Gestapo everywhere. There are ethnic Germans who've been moved into that part of um, of Poland, and there are, of course, Polish collaborators. And so you have to be on your guard. And remember, at one point, Rudy in later life would always mention is that he was not. They were not like he and Wetzler were not like other escapees or other prisoners who were part often of a resistance. You know, Polish prisoners got out. They There were contacts on the outside. Uh, there were networks. He would say, remember, the, he got out with no map, no compass, no documents, no friends. It was the two of them under a moonlit sky were suddenly outside the Auschwitz fence after the amazing escape, which we, we're not detailing. And they had where do you even begin? They had yeah. to navigate just really by using the combination of the moon and, and a river. They had no other way even of knowing where they were. And they would go at night. They had to cross marshlands and forests and mountains and rivers. They couldn't dare risk be, being seen during the daytime. 
um, just the two of them and their wits. They had to make an 11-day journey to reach um, uh, their home country of Slovakia, to cross that southern Polish border into Slovakia. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Ultimately, forward is the only direction that we can go. And I think that anybody who offers the view into the future, whether it's a, a justified or something that's that's fantastical, really does settle us and reduces our anxiety uh, so that we can imagine where we're going to be. Thanks to huge leaps forward in science and technology, we can now predict the future with more accuracy than any time in history, not just the next year, but the next 500. We can spot threats and in some cases fend them off. From climate to biotech, AI to astronomy, experts are now able to speak with unprecedented authority about what will actually happen in the future. That's where the Y-Tree Futureverse comes in. In this new series from Intelligence Squared and Y-Tree, we bring you the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. The best way to predict the future is to make it. So people out there in the laboratories, in the field, you know, making the new technologies. Those are the people we should be asking what the future is going to be. You know, we talk about the great resignation of young people leaving companies, but more and more CEOs are stepping aside and saying, actually, I want to work for companies and organizations that are purpose-driven. And in 50 years' time, it is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope Drawing on the expertise of artists, scientists, financial experts, and climate activists, the Futureverse is at the forefront of the world's most crucial issues and questions. Subscribe to the Futureverse on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The past is in your head, the future is in your hands. I mean, it's it's a, a, just a remarkable tale and so well told. It's just utterly gripping. I think the, the question that a lot of people will have is that once they do manage to get out with this information, why doesn't it explode all over the world? 
I mean, that's such a big question and such an important question. They do get across the border. They make contact with, you know, the remnant Jewish community, the tiny handful of Slovak Jews who have held on and not been deported. There had been a pause in the deportations from Slovakia. They make contact and then still in hiding, you know, in a basement in the Slovak town of Zilina, they pour out everything they have observed and you know, we, 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 I did toy with calling this book The Memory Man because Rudolf Verber, besides pulling off this extraordinary act of physical escape, mm. it was worth it because, or, or rather it was, it was made valuable because he had a gift of an extraordinary memory and he had memorized all those transports he had seen. He'd, he'd logged every single one of them to the point where when he does reach that basement in Zilina, he can almost download, he can sort of disgorge all this information that's been in his head for nearly two years. Uh, and the Slovak Jews there in Zilina write it all down. Mm. And the what is produced is called the Verba Wetzler Report is really a product of dictation. It's 32 pages, single spaced, of hard factual information. And at that moment, it's April 1944 we're talking about. At that moment, it is the most full, uh, full thorough, detailed account of Auschwitz that has existed anywhere at any time. It's the first really full detailed account of what is going on in this place. Before then, people had fragments, they had intimations, they pieced bits and pieces together. But now they have the actual, they have the goods, they have this fact. And his view was, the minute this had been done, obviously, the Auschwitz would cease to function. I mean, he believed sitting there in Auschwitz that the proof that no one in the world knew of Auschwitz's existence was Auschwitz's existence. It was unimaginable to him that a place in Europe was existing killing at its peak 12 to 15,000 people a day. Uh, that was impossible if the world knew about it because obviously the world would stop that. There was no way that would be allowed to happen. So he believed that just saying it and getting this report you know, out would do the job. It didn't quite work out that way, and that would really be a, a defining theme for the rest of his life. But the report would then embark on its on its own journey, and and that too, uh, to my mind, is a series of more extraordinary escapes. The word itself, the truth, kind of escapes across occupied Europe because this report. You know, now we imagine when you disseminate information, you press send on a computer and it's all over the world in seconds. Mm. Then it meant physical copies had to be carried hand to hand in secret, smuggled across borders, translated in, you know, attic rooms in secret. And I have the detail there of how that all happened. I think this is the first time the journey of the report has ever been fully reconstructed, as I've done in this book, how it got to all these different people. But it somehow does reach the desks of Winston Churchill, who writes in the margin of the summary version he gets, you know, what can be done, what can be said. Um, it reaches Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, D.C. It reaches the Pope in Rome. They all now have this testimony of this of this teenage boy and his friend from Ternova, Slovakia, telling them what's happening in Auschwitz. Now, the Jewish leadership who had got this word out, they'd sort of attached a note. They'd paperclipped a memo at the top of the report saying, do something, bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz. You know, very logical. If Auschwitz is a killing factory, well, then take out the conveyor belt, you know, yeah. bomb those railway tracks. And I chart in the book how 
yes, you know, Churchill sends a note to his foreign secretary saying, get anything out of the Air Force you can, invoke me if necessary. It, you know, different officials read it in Washington. They all are aware of the request. They've got the facts there. And yet, as we know, those railway tracks were never bombed. There was never that action either in from the RAF or from the United States Air Force. And Auschwitz carried on you know, in its terms, Nazi language processing 10, 12, 15,000 killing, 10, 12, 15,000 Jews a day, even after his report was out. But I do want to say, because I don't want people to come away with the idea that it somehow failed, it, it didn't because also the report was taking, you know, many, many routes. And one of them was it reached a journalist in Zurich, a British journalist, Walter Garrett of a, the Exchange Telegraph Press Agency and a man who knew a story when he saw one. And he sees this report and he realized this, this is the scoop of the century in a way. And he, it's an amazing scene. You know, he's at night on his bicycle. He writes a version and posts it through the mailbox of all the different news agencies in neutral Switzerland. And that gets the word out. It then does make it into the newspapers and then in late June, well, then finally, in a way, Roosevelt and the Pope, they feel, I think, to some extent, shamed into acting because now their publics know about this. And they write to the de facto leader of Hungary, where these the last Jewish community that hadn't yet been fully eradicated and slaughtered uh, or caught in the Nazi inferno, better way of putting it. Mm. Um, they uh, They write to the de facto leader of Hungary and say, You've got to halt these deportations. Now, by then, 437,000 Jews of the Hungarian provinces had been deported and most of them murdered in Auschwitz. But the Jews of the capital city, Budapest, had not yet been killed. They get that you know, plea from the Pope, almost a threat from Roosevelt, that you'll be prosecuted for war crimes if you allow this to continue. And they halt, halt this Rahorti, the leader of Hungary, halts the deportation and of the Jews of Budapest. And that is why I say Verba, along with Wetzler, are should be credited with saving 200,000 Jewish lives. It is one of the great acts of rescue and heroism of the Second World War. And it is why I consider Rudolf Verba's name should be up there with Anne Frank, Oscar Schindler, Primo Levi as the names that define our understanding of the Holocaust. I mean, it, it is a remarkable legacy. I just sort of, I really want to try to, to work out, you know, a bit like the woman who gets off the train, arrives at Auschwitz and doesn't want to hear the truth. What goes wrong? What goes wrong when people, when Churchill, Roosevelt, people receive the report, are clearly shocked by it. Why, why aren't railway lines bombed? Why, why does nothing happen for such a long time? Yeah, yeah. Um- so, uh, look, on one, for, for, there are practical reasons. So, you know, the RAF says, look, we bomb uh, by night. It's the, this would have to be done by day. This is one for the Americans. It bounces through the bureaucracy. The Americans say, well, the problem with it, Roosevelt himself is said to have said, the problem with this is if we were to bomb these railway tracks, some Jews will get killed and we will then be implicit, in, complicit, uh, implicated in this whole horrid business. And so there's practical problems. There's prejudice is a factor. You know, it arrives on the desk of an official in the foreign office who says, you know, um, 
well, we have to allow for a certain degree of Jewish exaggeration uh, on reading this report. There's oh, wow. another, yeah, there's a foreign office official who says, I think the foreign office has already done far too much for, quote, these wailing Jews. You know, there was prejudice. It wasn't thought to be a wise PR move, propaganda move for the allies to say we we're partly motivated by wanting to save Jews from a genocide. The fear in both countries was that could turn off public opinion, wow. who doesn't want to be fighting a war to save Jews. They want to be fighting a war for some other, for their own reasons, not for these reasons. You know, there's there's a story where the report, the Verbovets report, is passed to an American army magazine called Yank, which had said to the Office of War Information, look, we want to do something on Nazi atrocities and war crimes. They send them the Verbovets report saying, look, you know, knock yourself out. There's 32 pages worth of horror here. And Yank magazine writes back and goes, no, that's too Semitic. We would rather have a less Jewish account. Um, in other words, wow. we want Nazi war crimes, but let's have the victims not be Jews. You know, that's difficult. And so there is prejudice that it runs to. But the deeper water that I think in some ways in interested me more is what you and I touched on before, which is there is a human inability, reluctance mm. to comprehend terrible news. And, you know, I, that these things are not to be compared. They're entirely different. But the human impulse to somehow look away, I think, you know, you could say now in the climate crisis, you know, that we find yes. it very hard to absorb information that, that, that says you're, you know, that talks of destruction, human destruction, and even imminent destruction. And so if we can put fingers on our ears now about the climate warnings, well, maybe we can understand what was going on there. And that is particularly relevant with the fate of the Jews of Hungary, who I mentioned. Rudolf Verber's driving purpose was warning them. He knew they were next. And he thought this report has to get into the hands. You know, Churchill Roosevelt, fine. But the people who really need this warning are the Jews who are being deported, rounded up now in these villages. They need to know that if they get on that train, they're going to their deaths. And that report was within, you know, the ink was barely dry before it reached the de facto leader of the Jews of Hungary, Reju Kastner in Budapest, who for his own reasons, which I detail in the book and people's debate to this day, he did not pass on that report. He kept it in a drawer in his desk and the Jews of Hungary never knew about it. And Verb himself could never let that go. He could never forgive that in later life because he was convinced if the Jews of Hungary had seen that report, maybe they wouldn't have taken up arms. He got that. But they, maybe they would have had a chance to think about strategies for survival, escape, panic, run away, chaos, rather than just calmly getting on with your suitcase and your pots and pans onto those trains. But that never happened yeah. because even the Jews themselves, once they had this warning, you know, did not pass it on, in not the Jews plural, I'm sorry, but Kassner himself did not do that. And yes, as you say, there are even cases of individual Jews being warned by people who've been in Auschwitz, do not go there, do not get on that train, and they can't hear it. They put their fingers in their ears. And just going back to Kassner, because this is a fascinating part of the story, you know, it's shocking to think that prejudice might have been part of the reason more wasn't done in, say, the Foreign Office. But Kastner is particularly baffling because, you know, that it's not even prejudice. What stops Kastner from acting? 
So you're right. It's not the the same motive that's going on in Whitehall or in Washington. Uh, Kastner was engaged in secret talks of his own with the Nazis. Um, he was talking to Eichmann and Eichmann's team in Budapest. And the net result of those talks was a train known as the Kastner train on, on board, which were nearly 1,700 Jews who were to survive. They were taken out of Hungary and eventually would reach Switzerland and safety. Now, some people say that makes Rudolf Kastner a hero who rescued 1,684 Jews. You know, Others say he the the price that he uh, of him saving those 1684 including many of his own relatives people from his hometown various other prominent people of influence in hungarian jewish life uh, his price was his silence that is the uh, accusation that he did a deal that in effect he would the few would be spared at the price of the lives of the many. Now, as I say, this is fiercely debated. Kastner has his defenders to this day. Kastner's great grand, sorry, Kastner's granddaughter was just re-elected in the last couple of days as the leader of the Israeli Labour Party. This is still a live issue in Israel oh. and around the Jewish world. Um, but I, the evidence that I focus on is the one that related to Rudolf Verber and Fred Wetzler and their report. And it is not contested, I don't think, that the Verber-Wetzler report was not distributed by Kastner and could have been. And the only debate is how much difference it would have made. Rudy himself was convinced that if Jews had had that access to that report, they at least would have had the chance to do something, and Kastner never did it. And in fact, there's even more damning evidence against Kastner. You know, not only did he not spread information, but I think there's evidence that he spread disinformation, that he was, in effect, somebody who had made a kind of pact with the devil uh, in his pact with Eichmann. Uh, you know, maybe the answer is that we can't say, that we should say from this distance, it's not fair for us to judge someone unless we've been in his shoes. But I think the you know the the historical argument and debate around Kastner is turning pretty you know uh, robustly against him. It's certainly the kind of conclusion I drew after mm. having looked at this. But Verber himself could not let it go. He was enraged for decades afterwards by that very specific failure to pass on his report to the Jews of Hungary. He believed those four hundred and thirty seven thousand Jews. Many of them could have been saved or at least had a chance, and they had no chance. We've got a question here from the, the audience just asking, to what extent, if any, was what was going on at Auschwitz and other camps known or suspected by the Allies? So I guess sort of before the report arrived on their desks, how much did they already know? Great question. Uh, and it's a question that Rudolf Verber himself was never able to really get the full answer because there's more evidence has come out or rather, he got the answer towards the end of his life, but um, more evidence come out since. I think his working hypothesis for many years was that the Allies knew nothing. And of course, that is, was, his, in a way, his explanation mm. for why the camp was continuing to function. Uh, archives that have been opened up in the 1990s and since suggest that while it's absolutely the case that public opinion knew nothing, and the, even the word Auschwitz was barely known, um, not known really around the world. The leadership, Churchill himself, Roosevelt himself, 
they were getting enough intelligence reports, um, admit again, not the detail, not the scope of the Verbovetsa report, nothing like, but they were getting evidence that would have made it pretty clear to them. It was not, you know, a secret that the Nazis by then uh, were intent on eliminating the Jews of Europe. And uh, Adolf Hitler himself, you know, had made, said in a speech, uh, on you know, 1939, repeated it in 1949. This war will end with the annihilation of the Jews of Europe. You know, there were reports of the different sites and locations, uh, and so on. And so, yes, it wasn't chapter and verse, but the uh, the Allied leadership did know, um, you know, a fair amount, enough to have drawn a you know a pretty full picture of what was happening in those places. Um, what he provided was incontrovertible, detailed evidence. It's why the Verbovetsa report was submitted in evidence at the Nuremberg tribunals after the war. So the dispiriting thought is that the likes of Churchill and, e, uh, and Roosevelt really did know, mm. but didn't bomb those railway tracks for the reasons we've said. And in some ways, it gives you then another way to read some of the documents because that remark, what can be done, what can be said, well, maybe instead of being a man in despair of, uh, and just horrified by what he's reading, maybe he's sort of saying there, look, now this is out. What can be done? What can be said? You know, because me, Churchill, you, Eden, we've known about this, but now it's out there. That's another way of reading that scribbled note in the, in, 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 on the documents. Um, the point is, more was known than Rudy ever imagined, and yet... Uh, there was not action. The defense, by the way, of Churchill and Roosevelt is the one they made at the time, which is the best service they could do for the Jews of Europe was to defeat Nazism and that they were doing their bit by fighting the war. And they didn't want to do anything that distracted from that. In my view, bombing the railroad tracks would barely have been a distraction. But that's that's the argument. It's, it is shocking to think that was always a possibility and, and wasn't done. For Rudolf Ferber, who risked so much to get this information out, how does he feel at this point where he's done the impossible, he sent the information out, and yet, and yet, it's so hard to get the world to respond? I mean, he was boiling with frustration and was get, went to extra, extraordinary lengths, I mean, to the point where he was almost trying to hand-make copies of the report himself and get them into Hungary. Uh, and, and you know, Goethe Verbova, the lady with the red suitcase I mentioned at the start, you know, at one point he they, they meet up again. She, you know, teen, her teenage sweetheart is now a Holocaust survivor, not that anyone would have used that language. He's a man who's escaped from Auschwitz. And he asks a favor and says, will you type up copies of the report? And she does that, you know, illicitly, in secret, under, they're both now living on false papers, um, but she does that he, because this is how desperate he is to get the word out. But he knows um, that it doesn't really uh, get out. He never, by the way, not, not till many, many years later, did he realize the role his report had played in eventually getting that edict from the ruler of Hungary to halt the deportations of Budapest and save those 200,000 lives. It was many decades before he realized his own real role in that um and that you know and the, the the heroism the extraordinary accomplishment he'd made um but the truth is it was little comfort to him because that frustration he had 
In the closing months of the war, he becomes, by the way, a partisan. He fights in the Slovak resistance. He wears a uniform. He gets to at last hold a gun and defend himself and, you know, and take out Nazis. I mean, this is something he'd been desperate to do. Mm. He gets to do all that. Um, but it doesn't really assuage that rage that he would feel for years. He That autobiography I mentioned that he wrote in 1963, its original title was I Cannot Forgive. You know, and people wow. thought he meant by that he cannot forgive Hitler, he cannot forgive the Nazis. Goethe Verbova, uh, in one of those afternoons in her garden, uh, and of, you know, of course she had known Rudy when he wrote the book, uh, said to me, I think the people he couldn't forgive were the people who didn't pass on his report, his mm. warning. Of course he knew that the Nazis were responsible. That was a given. They were the ones who, as it were, pulled the trigger. But the uh, fury he felt for many, many years was at those who had passed, failed to pass on his warning. To him, it was just – he had done the, the not just the hard bit. He'd done the impossible bit. And yet um, it did save 200,000 lives. Never wanted to detract from that. But it could have saved, he believed, so many more. Why is it? You know, given that he did do interviews, he wrote an autobiography – he did, was had the most remarkable story, you know, just of his escape, let alone the the effect it had in in alerting people to what was happening. Why is it that people haven't heard of Rudolf Ferber before? You know, you were saying earlier that you hope this will um, that this will now sort of place him in the in the same um, same group of names as as Anne Frank and 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 Oscar Schindler. But how how did this? How has he not been better known? It is such a good question because there is no and, – and people, readers have been asking this because once you've come to the end of it, you just think this man should be famous. Yeah. I mean, it because, you know, it's an heroic escape. It's 200,000 lives. It's just an amazing thing. And part of that relates to what I mentioned before about the anger and the fury, that he was um, an awkward Holocaust survivor. And I, I, I choose my words carefully, meaning – there is, and he was aware of this, a particular expectation of Holocaust survivors. I think we, if you listen to interviews when they're on, they're very elderly now, very frail, but when they're on TV documentaries or radio programs, there's a sort of hush that descends. They're interviewed with great reverence. There's an expectation that they will dispense some kind of healing wisdom, mm. that they will give us, tell us some sort of beautiful, uplifting truth that despite everything, people are good and there is survival and will it will be inspiring and there'll be words that you could put on a poster um, that are inspirational. And Rudy would not do that. He could not do it and he would not do it. And I found in the uh, you know in his papers a letter that he writes to a BBC producer where he says, you know, I should warn you, I am not going to be your Holocaust survivor of cliche. I won't do that. And that's because he would not play that role. Instead, he would be angry and he would point an accusing finger, not just at the Nazis. Everyone's okay with that. But he would point an accusing finger, yes, at Whitehall and Washington, but he would start talking about Jewish leaders who hadn't done enough. And that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for Jewish audiences. It's uncomfortable for others. Mm. Uh, it was. It, they wanted the story to be 
neat. And, you know, the allies are meant to be the heroes. Roosevelt and Churchill are the liberators of, of, uh, of the world against fascism and, and rightly so. But he was coming along to make the story much more complicated. And he did it in a way that was not palatable. You know, uh, they, I, I, I found this amazes me in a way. He's spent the last decades of his life as a scientist in Vancouver in Canada. In Vancouver, every year at his own university, the University of British Columbia, they would have a kind of symposium, a conference for high school students in Vancouver about the Holocaust. Mm. They had living in their city the ultimate witness of the Holocaust, a man who'd been in Auschwitz for two years and escaped. They did not invite Rudolf Werber. And I spoke to the people involved and they said, because you didn't know if he was going to descend into accusations and rage that they felt was just not suitable for 15, 16-year-olds to be hearing. And so he was not invited even there. Instead, he would wait in the wings watching. He wanted to be there so much that he would watch the proceedings, but he wasn't himself on stage or taking part. And so in Israel, this stuff about Rudolf Kastner, who I mentioned, you know, who, who then moved to Israel after, survived the war, obviously, and made a new life in Israel and became politically quite eminent, it, be, it was controversial for somebody to be pointing the finger at him mm. as uh, as Verba was. And so partly, you know, go back to something we talked about right at the beginning about why now. I, my hope and, and belief actually is that 80 years after these um, events, nearly 80 years, it will be possible for people to look at Rudolf Verba and put aside some of those battles that prevented him getting the attention he deserved. You know, in Israel, he was a, he, it took a long time for him to get recognition and he barely got it. Um, he, you know, his memoir was not translated into Hebrew until just about 20 years ago, for example. Um, and that's because people were uncomfortable with all this other stuff. I hope now we can sort of move beyond that and say, look, whatever your view of the Kastner controversy, what this man did was extraordinary and deserves to be remembered. And I hope that somehow, Eight years is enough time where very few of the people involved in those battles are still around, where actually he can get his due recognition. I think he deserves it. And I think, you know, the responses of people who've read the book so far suggest to me that people feel that too. He deserves that recognition, even if he was a difficult guy. He wasn't a you know, sweet, easy guest to book on a radio program. He wasn't. He wouldn't be that. But he did something heroic and extraordinary, and he deserves to be recognized for it. I hope he is. How has your book gone down in Israel? I mean, is this reigniting a debate around Kastner and what happened? Well, I await that moment. It, it is not it, the only translation that is yet out is Dutch that has come out and the um, just, and then there's translations coming in all kinds of languages, um, you know, in Japanese, in Italian, in Swedish, in Finnish. And so I'm delighted about that. But as yet, no plans yet for a Hebrew translation. And that, you know, is perhaps, perhaps, I don't know. Does it suggest that there is still some scratchiness around this topic? It's too early for me to say that yet. We don't, I don't know. What, if it comes out in Hebrew, we will really see how, how that country is, is sort of, um, uh, able to accommodate this story. We'll see. Um, but look, elsewhere, the response from Jewish readers, non-Jewish readers, and elsewhere, uh, suggests that people are, you know, not only, ready to sort of let go of any of those of past issues, but actually on the contrary, full of uh, 
of admiration and, and great interest in, in what this man did. Well, hopefully this does now cement his, his place in, in the history of the period and, and just the remarkable things that he managed to achieve. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming and talking to us about the book. It is an amazing read. I can't recommend it enough. It's already all over the bestseller books, uh, book lists and I'm sure it's going to do better. But thank you for talking to us about it today. My thanks to Jonathan, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks so much, Mandy. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.